Number 3. Managing for the Master. First Quarter, 2023. John Pauline. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to start Lesson 3, the tithing contract, under the quarter Managing for the Master Till He Comes. Dr. John Pauline is our moderator, and Iris is going to offer our opening prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you in praise for who you are and for the invitation to come together to study your word. Lord, we long to know more about you. We want the truth about who you are to sink into the deepest parts of our soul so that this truth transforms our lives and empowers us to be whom you want us to be in this world, your agents. So we ask for your Holy Spirit to lead and guide throughout our reflections this morning. We ask for a special blessing on John Pauline, but also the entire group, that every word that we speak bring honor and glory to your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So this is a third in a series of studies on the biblical concept of stewardship. It's entitled Managing for the Master. And I remember as I was reading this lesson, just something uneasy. I just couldn't put my finger on it for a while. Something wasn't quite computing. And then I realized that the author was operating with scripture in a way that did not always seem to answer what was actually being asked. And I don't mean to imply it was illegitimate in any way, but it led me to think through how should one approach scripture. And so we'll share number one. I'm going to give you a short course in hermeneutics. Okay, you'll get 30 hours in three and a half minutes here. Okay, but at least it gives you a starting point, then we'll practice it through this lesson, and I think you'll see how it works, and I think it will be helpful in understanding the topic and how it was handled in this lesson. So, reading number one, there are three main ways that scholars approach the Bible. I call the first approach biblical exegesis. That method seeks to answer the question, what was the Bible writer trying to say? It focuses on the text in its original context and the intention of the author, the human author in this case, in writing that text. So biblical exegesis focuses on the text and what was the writer of that text in the original context trying to say? And so if your topic is tithing, you might ask the question of each passage, what was going on there originally? And how can we make appropriate use of that for our time today? The second approach is biblical theology. That method seeks to answer the question, what did the Bible writer believe? It focuses on the larger understandings of the author that would cause him or her to write what they did. For example, what did Paul or Moses or John believe that would substantiate a particular thing that they wrote, you see? So it's going behind the text, in a sense, to ask what was the intention, you know, what was the fundamental belief that would result in a particular thing that was written there, all right? And another thing with biblical theology, you could ask the question, how does the entire canon of the Bible impact our understanding of this text? So biblical theology, it goes beyond the intention of the text to see what larger intention might be there, especially in God's mind, in putting the scriptures together. The third approach is systematic theology. That method seeks to answer the question, what should we believe? 
What should I believe? It seeks to answer the questions of today by means of the Bible and any other sources of truth that may be available to human beings, such as later inspiration for Seventh-day Adventists, Ellen White comes to mind, science, history, philosophy, and psychology. If we're made in the image of God, then psychology just might teach us something about God, rightly understood. All right, so systematic theology is answering the questions of today through study of the Bible and any other sources of truth that might be available. But here's the issue. Without paying careful attention to biblical exegesis and theology, systematic theology can misuse the Bible in a way that leads people astray. So careful attention to all three approaches can help clarify both the Bible's original meaning and its application for today. You see, the danger of systematic theology is you take what you believe, and then you open the Bible and search for texts that seem to support what you believe, and then say that's, you know, that's what the Bible means here. And the danger is that generally with Sabbath school quarterlies, when they're not following a Bible book, topical lessons like this tend to use the Bible sometimes, and hopefully, usually in appropriate ways. But there's a tendency, I think, to look for the answers that we are looking for rather than understanding what the original text was trying to say. So that explains some of my unease because it seemed that the lesson was going too quickly from the text to some contemporary conclusion that maybe wasn't supported by the original intention of the author. So anyway, that's a summary of what we're going to do. And then as we go through, I will note the approach that we are taking in each place. So let's move on to number two. In approaching the question of tithing, it is helpful first to understand each tithing text in the Bible in terms of the original author's intention, biblical exegesis, then its place in the larger canon of scripture, biblical theology, and then how the biblical concept of tithing should apply in today's world. And that would be systematic theology. All three of those methods will prove helpful in our study of this week's topic. Before going on, let me just ask, is there anyone has a question about what I just shared? Is there anything puzzling there, anything not clear, so that we're on the same page moving forward? All right, if you had no questions following that, let's go on to number three and put it into practice. In a full canon approach to the Bible, this is number three, biblical theology, the first and last references to a particular theme in the Bible are often noteworthy. So, uh, biblical theologians have noticed that if a theme appears, say, 20 times in the Bible, the first and last references might have extended information that might be helpful. Well, the interesting thing, when it comes to tithing, the first and last references to tithing in the Bible both concern the same story, the figure of Melchizedek. So, let's start with the first reference to tithing in the Bible, and that's in Genesis 14, 17 to 24. And perhaps let's start with verses 17 and 18. After his return from the defeat of Kedor Lamer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. And King Melchizedek of Salem brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, maker of heaven and earth. 
All right. So you have here a story where two Canaanite kings come out to meet Abraham. Abraham has just fought a battle to rescue his nephew Lot and the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. And in returning from that victorious battle, he is met by two Canaanite kings. One would be obvious, the king of Sodom would certainly be excited to hear that a victory had been won and his people were going to be restored to him. The second one, though, is a surprise in the story. It's the king of Salem. And generally, that's presumed to be a reference to Jerusalem. Jerusalem's not down in the Jordan Valley, where Sodom and Gomorrah are. Jerusalem is up on the mountain ridge about about 3,000, 4,000 feet higher than the Jordan Valley and some 25 to 30 miles distance. So this was not Melchizedek's fight. And yet he comes to be part of this delegation that meets Abraham in returning from the battle, which was way up in Syria, maybe 100, 150 miles away. So news has probably been traveling and a big delegation is ready to meet him. Now, here's where it gets interesting. First of all, Melchizedek, no background. I mean, he shows up here and then he goes away and he's never heard from again in Genesis. So you don't know what background he has. You don't know if he had any interaction after that with Abraham or anyone else. So here just comes, pops out of nowhere. And then it says of him, he's the king of Salem and he's the priest of the Most High God. So what is that all about? If you search your way through the Bible, this term, Most High God, is used in only a few places. And it seems always in the context of either non-Jewish religions or someone who is opposed to God or in some way. So you have, for example, Melchizedek here. He's priest of the Most High God. Nebuchadnezzar refers to Israel's God as the Most High God. In the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels, demons talk about the Most High God and being threatened by the Most High God. In Thessalonica, there's a demon-possessed woman, or is it Philippi? A demon-possessed woman approaches Paul and said, these are representatives of the Most High God. It seems that in the Bible, Most High God is a reference to Yahweh by non-Jewish people. It's another term for Yahweh, but when Yahweh is being seen by other entities. So the big question comes into mind, how did Melchizedek become a priest of Yahweh? Wouldn't we like to know? No relation to Abraham before that we know of. There's no later things in the Bible, oh yeah, here's a separate strand of Yahweh worship outside of Israel. He just comes from nowhere and goes back to nowhere. Verses 19 and 20. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, maker of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him one-tenth of everything. All right, so... Melchizedek comes and blesses Abraham. Now, who's greater, the one who blesses or the one who is blessed? Normally, the greater one is the one who blesses. This is the one in control of the situation. So, when you go back a couple chapters, God says of Abraham, you will be blessed. And the implication is he'll be blessed by Yahweh. Is this the blessing of Yahweh? Does God use a Canaanite king as his agent to bring blessing to Abraham. And if it puts the Canaanite king in sort of the superior position, what is that saying? Very, very interesting story. 
But it seems that Abraham recognizes that Melchizedek is genuine, that they're worshiping the same God, because he says later on that Yahweh, the Most High God. So Abraham himself defines Most High God as Yahweh. So Melchizedek is a Yahweh worshiper who is blessing Abraham in behalf of God. Uh, Interesting story. Bob, what do you make of this? Well, there's another little facet to it also, which is Sodom which is within Abraham's lifetime, is destroyed, if I recall the history correctly. And yet, so some of the people who were rescued could well have been part of Sodom later on when it was destroyed. So you're thinking about all the relationships here that were really pretty close in time. And so Melchizedek obviously sounds like he believes in God. Well, was the king of Sodom, was the whole city that bad at that time that it was worth rescuing? Obviously, I guess they thought so. Hmm. Interesting. Yes, very interesting. And no doubt, after the capture, Abraham's capture of these folk, he had perhaps seven days or more to interact with some of these citizens of Sodom. And perhaps that was part of his motivation for interceding later on. These are real people he knew, not just Lot. There were others that he was familiar with. Henry? Something else that calls my attention into this verse is that Melchizedek doesn't call himself the priest of the Most High. Abraham doesn't call him priest of the Most High, it's kind of a given. It's the writer, the one that makes the designation. Mm -hmm. So something that may have been made obvious to the writer that was not necessary during the interaction, because Mm -hmm. he is not claiming I am. Obviously, these are kings, as you were expressing, he was not coming from nearby. So there was an exchange of business cards, an introduction for Mm -hmm. Abraham to know who this individual is, to recognize him and give him the tithe. The story seems to assume it, and the only one that gives us the hints is the writer. So that goes into what you were mentioning. Was he a priest of the Most High by how Jehovah was perceived by the non-Jews? So this is very intriguing to me now. How is that recognition, and is there a need for him to be recognized as we will do it today, under this type of qualifier that will make it, okay, now you do serve the only one. Although they didn't need to have that designation, if what I'm saying makes sense. Is he a non-denominational Yahwist? (laughs) Very interesting stuff. Lou? It's always been kind of confusing to me. So Melchizedek apparently was a real king, but then is he representing kind of like almost a parable or uh, representing God or Jesus? This has always been a little confusing to me. So how do we define that? Your little theory here is maybe this is Jesus. Well, does it refer to Jesus? Is it Jesus? Is it the king? That's my dilemma. Well, obviously, the author of Hebrews, which we'll get to in just a little bit, is a bit puzzled by that as well. But he doesn't say that Melchizedek is Jesus. He just says he's like Jesus Mm -hmm. in that he has no beginning and no ending, so that he's a type of Jesus. It doesn't go so far as to rule out what you just suggested, but that doesn't seem to be the author of Hebrews' understanding. So, yeah, when the Bible leaves many things unsaid, then we are challenged to dig a little Mm -hmm. deeper. So it says Abraham gave him tithes of everything. And the thought occurred to me, was it tithes of everything Abraham had or tithes of the specific spoils? And I don't know that we have a certain answer, but I would suspect that it was the spoils of the battle 
that were in view here, including that which would go back to Sodom. So Abraham is tithing for the Sodomites too. <laughs> and that whatever blessing comes with tithing evidently might have passed on there as well. Verse 21. Then the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the people, but take the goods for yourself. All right. So the king of Sodom is willing to turn back the 90%. Abraham had just tithed on it, and now 90% king of Sodom, you keep it all. Okay, just let me have my people back. And so there's generosity here on the part of the king of Sodom, which is an interesting piece of the story. Then verse 22. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord, God most high, maker of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours, so that you might not say, I have made Abram rich. Okay. And here, just reading behind the English, the Lord there is Yahweh in the Hebrew. So he's saying, I've raised my hand to Yahweh, God most high. You see, he adds that phrase to make clear the equation between the two, creator of heaven and earth. So Abraham acknowledges Melchizedek's God as his own God. And then verse 24. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten, and the share of the men who went with me, Aner, Eshkol, and Memory. Let them take their share. Once again, we see generosity. Abraham is interceding for Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre as well, because they were allies, Canaanite allies of his that went with him into the battle, risked their lives for Abraham's cause. And so he says, they should get full shares. Even though I'm returning my share to you, let them have their share. Since the king of Sodom was being generous, Abraham in turn is generous and takes care of his allies. All right, let's wrestle with this a little bit. Why is this story in Genesis? That's the exegetical question. You know, this is not the tithing question or anything. It's just the exegetical. Why is this story here? What's the point in this particular story? And Henry, go ahead. Yes, thank you. And I think it makes a connection with your question right now, the reason of this story. And I am just making a connection with Acts 17.23. Paul is meeting these people, pagans, in the Areopagus, and they have a God that is unknown, and they have it in a very special place. These uh, non-denominational Jehovah's you mentioned just a few minutes ago. And Paul didn't say, this God is not real just because you don't have the proper name. This God is not real just because you don't know how to approach him in the proper way that our books state. He says, I happen to know this God that you don't know too much about it. And he doesn't say you are grown because all of this, but he's leveraging that. So I think that I make the connection in there and the importance because Abraham was to make that connection with the people at that time. Abraham was acting like Paul was with these pagans at that time, making the connection for them to recognize who was the most high without being against what they were believing already. He was approaching them at the level that they were at to make the connection. And then it's when Abraham makes that statement, this, that you worship Melchizedek, is the God, the creator of heavens and earth. Mm -hmm. If you didn't know that part, if you thought it was the most high, I'm telling you the reasons why this is the most high. And as a proof that we do revere the same God, which I happen to have more information about him than you do, here's the tithe. 
And that's why he is given that as a way to say tithe is not because I have the obligation to pay it to you just because you are in authority. Tithe is a blessing from God to others through the means that he has given to me. So he wouldn't have given the tithe to the king of Sodom simply because he was in authority. He actually was more in authority than Melchizedek at that moment because it was his territory that they were standing in. But you make a good point in recognizing him to be a priest of Yahweh, he was then a worthy recipient of that tithe in Abraham's view. And remember, this is before Israel has priests at all. So this is very, very early. Let me just make one more comment, Henry, just so clarifying these methodologies. I did ask an exegetical question. You answered from a biblical theological perspective, which is valid, completely valid, a great connection. So I'm just pointing out that's biblical theology. When you bring in Acts, you bring in Hebrews, you have a broader biblical perspective on the same question. But I was asking, when Moses is sitting down, not knowing about Hebrews, not knowing about Paul, you know, Moses is sitting down and writing Genesis, why does he include this story? That, that's the exegetical question. There may not be an answer always, but to ask the question is important. Livius. In chapter 12, Abraham is called to come out of his country to leave his people. So I wonder if this is like Moses is trying to say, hey, even though God calls you out, maybe synonymous to the Exodus, leaving Egypt, he's going to provide a support group. And Melchizedek is like God's support group here for Abraham. You know, he's got his priests watching out for him or something. That's what I was thinking there. <laughs> Excellent suggestion. Yeah. Gary? Well, Abraham was called for a special purpose and all the promises and God's planning use of him. But right from the beginning, Melchizedek shows that he had people other places, that he had other followers, that even though he had this chosen people, it was not exclusive to them, although they had a special purpose that God was still dealing with whoever he could deal with wherever. Mm -hmm. Very good. Yes. And we'll come back to that in just a moment. Now, let me make one suggestion again. Purely exegetical would be starting with that text and what was written before. And what could possibly be the key here? One of the three promises to Abraham was the promise of many children, the promise of becoming a great nation. And what I think this story does in the original context is it shows how slender a thread God's promises hung on that the Babylonian invasion could easily have swept over the highlands as well, taking out Abraham and all of his allies, etc. That there was a grave danger here. The superpowers of the world existed outside of Canaan and could easily have altered events. So God, in a sense, was taking a huge risk and promising Abraham, in spite of all these challenges, your posterity is sure I will take care of you and I'll take care of your family. So I think exegetically, the context is the three promises to Abraham. And you want to ask at each of these stories, how does that fit in with the three promises that God gave to Abraham in chapter 12? Okay, Rita. I was just wondering if Abraham acknowledged Melchizedek because Abraham had come out of a place and a culture of multiple idol slash small g god worship. And I think Abraham must have recognized that there was a God, at least, who was over all of these other gods, though by this time didn't really know Yahweh. It took him till the binding of Isaac to know who Yahweh was and what Yahweh wanted of him. 
And he, I suspect, would have recognised this god with a small g who was over all of the other gods as God Most High and the Creator because they didn't have any other god who could explain all of that. And I just wonder if that was the original relationship between them and that ultimately Abraham learnt the name of that God as Yahweh and who that God was or is. Yes, I think originally, of course, a term like Most High God implies more than one, and this one is higher than all the others. So for a world in which there were many gods, it's a useful designation, not putting them down right away and saying, oh, that's nothing. These idols are nothing. It just simply says, okay, in this context, you just need to know this one is above all the others. Julie. So I'm thinking about what that exegetical question and the three different areas that God promised Abraham, I think, were land, children, and a blessing to the earth. And I think all three of these are addressed in the story and bring that context together. And I think maybe that's why it's in there. First of all, like you said, there's this thing about the air and how at risk Abraham was in this culture, in this place. And I think the next chapter actually moves into that, that after this whole battle and this whole interaction, Abraham's kind of worried about where he's at with all those nations now looking at him. And God comes back and says, you're going to have a child again. And Abraham starts arguing with about it because he's now kind of doubting the whole situation. So that ties in. It ties in with his connection with the land and how he has been promised this land, but he is not taking liberties. He has now in a position among these nations, and they're probably looking at him. There's been these big battles with, was it five nations versus four nations or something like that? And he's come in and he's conquered the conquering one. So he's kind of like this emerging superpower. And everybody's kind of looking at him saying, okay, how are we going to relate to him? And he comes through with this humble approach. Not only is he not taking any spoils of war, that would be expected at the time, but he's also giving a tenth and he's giving it to another religious leader, but he's really giving it to God and making a statement about his position that he's not a superpower, that God is really the chief instrument. He's not taking a political side. He's a part of the kingdom of God. So I think that's part of the statement there. And finally is the blessing to the world. And he's showing a precursor of that blessing to other nations that he is an instrument of. He's not the source of it, but he's an instrument. Excellent exegetical thinking that puts it in the context that's live right there in the text. Appreciate it. Not the only question to ask, so let me be clear. All the comments here have been very pertinent, very powerful, but thinking exegetically is hard for us. And the beauty of exegesis is it exposes things in the text that are relevant to the text, but that if we miss, we might misuse the text in another time and place. Following up on Henry and Gary's comments, and then I'll come back to you, Henry, but I had the question here in the handout, what does it tell us about God? And the provocative response I would give to that is, does God work for Apple or Microsoft? (laughs) And the humor behind that is simply pointing out, you have two very different approaches to computing. One, Apple says we have the world's best software. If you want it, you got to buy the hardware. The other says we have the world's best software and you can apply it to your own platform. Is Melchizedek an example of Microsoft? face, that the DNA of Yahweh worship can survive outside the hardware of God's special arrangement with Abraham and with Israel. There's several hints in the Old Testament that God was at work outside of Israel. And so I think as we conceive of mission today, I think more and more people are saying, yes, building the hardware is very important, and God is using the hardware 
of Seventh-day Adventist Church, for example, using that hardware to make a difference in the world. But if the Holy Spirit is working outside the hardware, how would God be operating there and how should we cooperate with him? Anyway, Henry, uh, you may have more thoughts on that same topic. Up at this point, on the story of the Bible, I don't recall that there is mention anywhere from a true religion or a designation of the chosen people or a designation of a false religion. God seems to be interacting with human beings after the flood, and God has been recognized as the powerful God, which we should be very careful the way that we deal with him because he may destroy us again, so we will build this tower because he is not trustworthy. Up to this point, there has not been a designation, a specific designation of this is the right people, this is the wrong people, this is the right God, this is the wrong God. And this is one of the very first that, I mean, if I am not wrong, trying to remember from the beginning to Genesis to this point, this is the first priest that is actually mentioned, right? So why then Abraham needed to question to give or not the tithe if he's a priest? There is no right and wrong designation of priest at that time. And so to me, what this story is showing is that Abraham was a man that was respectful of the religious authority that was before him, and he wasn't questioning, are you the right priest or not? Here is the tithe. That's why he gave the tithe to this king that was not only a king, but he was a priest. He doesn't give anything to anybody else. And besides that, he doesn't even take anything from them. So trying to make that exegetical connection, the only thing that may have been important for the people at the time is that this Abraham was respectful of God, and he wasn't asking for qualifiers. Okay, are you coming in representation of the Most High God? Here is the tithe. Here is my recognition. Validates what you have said just a little while ago. God was not working only for Abraham, was working for everybody at that time. And that was the intention why he called Abraham, because I want you to show all of the peoples of the earth that I care about all of them. I want through you to bless everybody. Yeah, it would be interesting to know. We have come to believe through archaeology that temples and priests and so on were quite common in Abraham's day in Mesopotamia, you know, Ur, the Chaldees, etc., and also in Egypt, both places where Abraham had been. So it would be interesting to know how he related to those priesthoods. Did he treat Melchizedek differently from the others? Did he see that as unique? which would be my suspicion. Or did he see, well, any priest will do? That's a worthy question to ask, but we don't have evidence for how Abraham would have related to those others. We just have this story. Sean? I would like to suggest that from the beginning of Abraham's call, he did not understand how God would bring this to pass and fulfill the promises. And the context involves uh, some rather weighty matters. Finance, political positioning, and Abram's tendency to attempt to calculate how to bring God's promise to pass from his own perspective is also buried in the text with his including Lot in the attempt to continue what he thought would be the connection for posterity and God's ability to bring about this promise. So I think there's a way to understand the context that's a little bit less generous to Abram as a big spiritual man of God. I think he 
is also calculating very carefully the best he can how to position himself politically, financially, by emulating the practices of those around him. And being a bit of a a salamander who changes his colors there, somebody who can adjust on the fly, as it were. I think Abraham is very steeped in attempting to figure out how to best position himself to be the fulfillment of the promise that he received from God. I don't think he always gets it right. I think in this case, with this priest of the Most High God, Melchizedek, he simply emulates what the practice is that is confronting him as a way to position himself in their generosity. So I don't mean to be less than generous with Abram, but I think he's a man who is calculating his way through something he really can't quite figure out. The Bible certainly doesn't whitewash its heroes. They are shown warts and all. And I've mentioned this before in this group, but just for reference, the opening three pages of volume four of the Testimonies for the Church, Ellen G. White, pages nine to 11, talks about this very thing. You know, why is the Bible so full of shady characters that would otherwise seem to be heroes? And very provocative, very interesting. Uh, Appreciate those thoughts, Sean. Before we go on, let me just mention that the lesson brings out one point that's critical to the title, and that is tithing. And that is this first story comes before Israel, before Levi, before priests of Israel, priests of Yahweh. So tithing, many Christian churches have suggested tithing was a Jewish thing, compact between God and the Jews, and therefore doesn't need to be observed. The lesson points out that tithing preceded the time of Israel, preceded the temple and all of that. So tithing, the tithing principle at least, seems to be more universal. It's not just limited to Israel. Seventh-day Adventists argue similarly for the Sabbath, that the Sabbath precedes Israel and therefore is of wider relevance. All right, Lou? Something that I think you continually bring up that I just love and I quote you very often about, and that is that God and the Holy Spirit are working, have been working from the very beginning in every heart, in every country, in every land, in every denomination, and in all the words you use to describe that. And this is a particular story about tithing. And I think it's a wonderful thing. God wants us to have generous hearts and give. And I think that's the purpose of tithing is so that we comprehend and and have the experience of sharing and giving. It's the giving heart, I think, that really God looks at. The question is asked in the chat, how long was it between this encounter with Sodom and the destruction of Sodom later on? And the simple answer, not precise one, but the simple answer is it's somewhat less than 25 years. Isaac was born 25 years after Abraham reaches Canaan. This incident occurs after a period of time, maybe several years, where Abraham and Lot have both grown in wealth to the point where they need to separate. At the other end, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah is sometime before the birth of Isaac. So if you take a couple of years at either end, maybe 15, maybe 20 years between the salvation of Sodom and the destruction of Sodom. All right, let's go to number four and move to the New Testament, the last reference to tithing in the Bible, Hebrews chapter 7, and let's just read verses 1 to 10, Terry, if you would. This King Melchizedek of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham as he was returning from defeating the kings and blessed him. 
And to him, Abraham apportioned one-tenth of everything. His name, in the first place, means king of righteousness. Next, he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. See how great he is? Even Abraham, the patriarch, gave him a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to collect tithes from the people, that is, from their kindred, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not belong to their ancestry, collected tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had received the promises." It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by those who are mortal. In the other, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Mm -hmm. All right. So here the story is told again. And it's a familiar story, and no question that it's the same story, the same Melchizedek. What does the author of Hebrews add? As you take a look at that text, what does it add that is not stated in Genesis 14? Well, one thing I noted is that it clarified the fact that Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils, not of everything that he owned. Okay, we raised that question in Genesis 14. The author of Hebrews is confident that, in fact, it was a tithe of the spoils rather than of everything. Anything else that's added to the story here? Well, that we don't seem to know Melchizedek's genealogy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The author of Hebrews zeroes in on the exegetical look that we took earlier. He zeroes in on that and he says, you know, this guy has no background and no future, just sort of a blank. And he says, in a sense, if you look at Jesus as a human being, his past (laughs) is an unknown to most people who walked with him and his glorious future would also not have been obvious. So he's seen here as a type of Jesus Christ. Anything else anyone notices? It certainly brings out the concept that we suggested earlier, that the blesser is greater than the blessed, and that therefore Melchizedek is a great man, very highly esteemed in the scriptures. Anything else? You'll notice that the author of Hebrews plays with the king of righteousness and the king of Salem. The name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. So he plays with the name you know, he's the king of righteousness, and then he's the king of Salem, which means peace. So the author of Hebrews expands on the exegesis to deliver something, some additional information as well. All right, Rita? Hebrews says that Melchizedek was a priest forever. We've no idea that whether that could be the case or not, because we'd expect a human being that priesthood would have either a limited time, which I think the Levitical priests did, or it ended when they died, which I suppose is tantamount to being a priest forever. So he's priest till he dies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the way the story is told in Genesis 14 reminds the author of Hebrews of Christ, no question about it. Although he seems to distinguish the two. He's not saying that Melchizedek was Christ, but that the story sounds a lot like Jesus Christ. So once again, you have the implication here that God is working 
outside the traditional pattern of Judaism, and that tithing itself goes beyond Judaism, is seemingly valid everywhere. So the question we haven't answered here is, what does it tell us about God? I think one of you gave a start to that earlier on. We may want to reflect a bit more on that. What does this whole story tell us about God? We have talked about what it tells us about tithing or mission, things like that. What does it tell us about God? All right, Terry? Well, if it talks about king of righteousness, king of peace, he's God of the most high. He's king. The priest is the king of righteousness and peace. And if he is priest and king of the most high God, then doesn't that imply that the most high God operates from a platform of peace and righteousness? Yes. Excellent. Excellent observation. Anything else? Yes. Livius. It says that he's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither the beginning of days nor end of life. So he's the Alpha and the Omega, everlasting, mm-hmm. ever existent one, without father or mother. Okay. Yes. Very good observations. Julie? I think that the author of Hebrews is trying to point out about God that he is not in our box. He goes beyond what our constructional box or our institutional boxes might be. And his whole point is, hey, the priesthood doesn't have to be the Levites only. God is doing a whole lot more. In fact, God is not just working in Israel. He's working outside of that. And he has a much bigger picture of what he does. I think that's kind of a key point. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Yeah. God is more broad-minded than we are. God is maybe more generous than we are. And God is more open to diversity than we are. I thought just the other day, God and variety, look at the animals, look at the insects. How many species of insect in the Berlin Zoo, they have an insectarium with 2,500 species of insects in it. (laughs) And that's only scratching the surface. So look at the flowers. No two snowflakes are exactly identical. We have a God who loves variety, loves diversity, and I guess we'll have to get used to that in eternity if we're not used to it now. Henry? To echo a little bit what you were saying, that God is more open than us, that God is more, he is completely open, he is completely inclusive. But what this story can show us is that from the beginning, his intention was to bless Every single one. He reached out to Cain when Cain was going astray. He reached out to the human beings when they were completely rebellious to them and built the ark and wait for them to go into the boat, even though he knew they didn't want to go. He was willing to wait. And he continued to do these offerings to everybody, not just for the ones, because he knew there were no ones there, but making it completely open for everybody. And just this story that happens after the destruction of Sodom, the invitation from a city that he knows doesn't have anybody, the invitation to say, go, try to find one. And I will work with those because as a matter of fact, I will draw some by force just to show you that I am willing to save anybody that wants to be saved. (laughs) Henry, beautiful statements there. I thank you for that. I, I was thinking as you spoke that human beings are programmed the opposite. 
by nature. All of us are born helpless. No baby would survive unless there's some older human being willing to sacrifice a portion of their life for that baby's survival. So we are dependent on others. And that means we grow up with a special love of our own. Those who are close to us, those who took care of us as children, those who have been there for us, they get priority in our minds. And it's not natural for us to simply go beyond that immediate situation. We give our first priority to our family, our second priority to our church, our third priority to our community, our fourth to the state, fifth to the nation. Only sixth place is the rest of humanity. So the love of one's own is at the root of human life, and it's at the root of politics, conflict, everything else that is wrong with the world. And yet it is ingrained in us because without that love of one's own, none of us would have survived. There are some people who love their own so much that they ensured the survival of their children in spite of great sacrifice. So it is not easy for us as human beings to have this broad, expansive perspective that God has uh, and that you so beautifully uh, laid out, Henry. So thank you for that. Let's go to number five. And Malachi 3.10, obviously, in a study of tithing, it would be difficult to skip over Malachi 3.10. We did touch on it in an earlier study in this series, but let's go back to this one verse in particular and reflect on it just a little bit. Malachi 3 and verse 10. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house, and thus put me to the test says the Lord of hosts, see if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you an overflowing blessing. All right. So the point I want you to see here, we've talked about tithing, and I think most of us are fairly familiar with the concept and some of the biblical texts that lie behind it. But the Seventh-day Adventist church has taken a step further in recent years and said that the storehouse principle should be applied to how we handle tithes today. Now, that's not obvious in this text or stated directly in this text. So we want to ask the question, is that an exegetical principle? Is it a theological principle? Is it contemporary theology, systematic theology? How do we come to that? So let's start with the exegetical question. What did the storehouse mean in Malachi 3.10? What were they talking about when it said, bring the tithes into the storehouse? I don't think we need to speculate on that one because it's explained in Deuteronomy 12 and verses 5 to 14. It tells us what the storehouse is and why there is such a storehouse. So exegetically, this is not a difficult question to answer. The question is, what do you do with that information today? And that's where I felt a certain sense of unease is how quickly the lesson moved from Malachi 3 to that other principle. Uh, let's look at Deuteronomy 12, 5 to 14 and follow along as Terry reads. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes as his habitation to put his name there. You shall go there, bringing there your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and your donations, your votive gifts, your freewill offerings, and the firstlings of your herds and flocks. And you shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God, you and your households together, rejoicing in all the undertakings in which the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall not act as we are acting here today, all of us according to our own desires. 
For you have not yet come into the rest and the possession that the Lord your God is giving you. When you cross over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is allotting to you, and when he gives you rest from your enemies all around so that you live in safety, then you shall bring everything that I command you to the place that the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and your donations, and all your choice votive gifts that you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you together with your sons and your daughters, your male and female slaves, and the Levites who reside in your towns, since they have no allotment or inheritance with you. Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place you happen to see, but only at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes. There you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do everything I command you. All right. It's interesting that it applies this tithing principle to the land, and the storehouse will be the temple. It'll be the place that God has chosen in the center of the country, and they would bring their tithes to that storehouse. And the purpose of the tithes would be what? To feed the Levites. They were one of the 12 tribes. All the other tribes got huge allotments of farmland. The primary occupation in those days was farming. And without the farmland, the Levites were dependent to eat upon the tithes that would come in. So their survival depended on everyone else following this principle. Was that necessary in the desert? Evidently not, according to this text. And the reason would be because of the manna. The manna fed everybody. So there was no need for the same kind of storehouse principle that they would have later on. So you see God arranging for the survival of the Levites there. That three times a year, they were to bring those tithes to the sanctuary. And in so doing, the Levites would distribute it among themselves and they would eat and be free to do the work of the temple. So the question for us today is, what do you do with that information? Is there a parallel today? Is there a Christian temple today, a Christian storehouse? That's the systematic theology and the biblical theology questions. Exegetically, the storehouse was the temple, the place where people brought their tithes, and then the Levites could draw from that for their own family's survival. So the next question is, what's the New Testament equivalent of the temple? And I'll throw that out to all of you a chance to rack your brains. This is a biblical theological question now. How would the New Testament writers seen the temple concept in relation to the church? What was the temple for the New Testament? Well, actually, that's a multiple answer, okay? So, the first answer to that question is the equivalent of the temple is Jesus himself. Do you remember in John 2, Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. They thought he was talking about the temple in Jerusalem, but no, he was talking about the temple of his body. In Matthew 12, Jesus says, something greater than the temple is standing here. For the Jews, there's only one thing greater than the temple, and that is the Shekinah glory that's inside the temple, the presence of God itself. God was with us in the flesh, in the person of Jesus. So Jesus is the temple in the New Testament. But that's not all the New Testament has to say. Where else in the New Testament do you have a temple? Anyone like to give a suggestion or a text? 
Where else in the New Testament do you find temple language besides Jesus himself? Aren't our bodies a temple of the Holy Spirit? Okay, good. Good observation. 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Of course, what would the storehouse mean there? Eat extra in case you have to fast someday? No. Maybe not. <laughs> but that's, yes, for the New Testament, our bodies are temples. So we're trying to determine how does this exegetical principle of what Israel did way back then apply to us today? Julie. Peter mentions we are living stones being built up, and we meaning a collective, which I would assume meant the body of Christ. So the whole group as a whole is a temple. That's kind of a worldwide thing. Okay. Yes, that's a reference to 1 Peter 2, where we are all living stones built up into a temple. Christ is the cornerstone, and so the church is a temple. A famous text, 1 Corinthians 3.17, says, don't you know that you are the temple of God? And the one who destroys that temple, God will destroy. And so some people said, oh, that's a health message thing. You know, your body's the temple, and if you mess it up, you know, that's on you. But actually, that text uses the plural, ye are the temple of God. So, 1 Corinthians 3 is not a body text like 1 Corinthians 6, but it's related to the church. So, the church is equivalent to the temple with each of the members being living stones. Dan? I wanted to bring up another concept or text or group of texts that I think we should also put in this equation. And that is when it says that when we can't go to the temple or when they couldn't go to the temple, they could use the money locally to celebrate and praise God in a more festive way. So it seems to me that the whole concept of this has broader implications than just the more localized going to the temple, because I don't know all the implications of the local celebration, but I think that's part of the equation too. Well, Deuteronomy 12, at least, is reflecting on the temple. And I think, let's see, in the lesson, there were several other places, Leviticus 27, Numbers 18, etc., which talked about bringing the tithes in so that the Levites could survive. So the Levites were a tribe that was chosen to serve God rather than do manual labor or do agricultural labor. Their time was to be invested in the work of the temple. And so the question would be, if the church is the equivalent of the temple, what would be the storehouse? If the church is the equivalent of the temple, who would be the Levites? Rita? Another text, which is almost a non-one, is Revelation 21, 22, when it says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. So there's no need for a temple in the New Jerusalem because the purpose of the temple is to allow God to be near. And when we see him face to face, there's no more need for a barrier. Henry? Yes, thank you. It seems to me that if the origin of the storehouse was to make provision for those that due to their not having means to survive because they were to be taking care of something different. The uh, intention of having the storehouse was to show compassion, to show love to my fellow brothers that didn't have any. And that's why God said, okay, please keep an eye on the Levites. They are busy doing other things they cannot provide for themselves. So give the tithe to them because they are the ones in need right now. Malachi is making emphasis in multiple different areas that the people of Israel was not very careful with the less privileged, not only the tithe, 
they were actually contemptuous about multiple things. They were questioning God in multiple different areas. And God actually, a little bit before in the book of Malachi, saying, I am not going to be taking any offerings from you. So then he come and ask them, where well, you have been stealing from me because you are not giving the tithe. He's not saying, I am having some negative balance here in my bank account. Is You are not showing that compassion that I was expecting from you. You are not keeping an eye on the less privileged as I was expecting from you. And if we expand that to the New Testament, that's what James mentions, right? In James chapter 1, 27, he says, Pure and genuine religion on the side of the God, the Father, means caring for orphans and widows, which at that time were the less possessed, were the ones with no means for survival. Because in our days, it may not mean that. If you are a widow, but you have a good insurance policy and access to many other wealthies, you are probably not one of the less possessed people. Being a widow or an orphan doesn't mean that today, but it meant that back in those days. And Paul in 1 Corinthians tells us that I can have everything, right? I can give 100% of what I have, even my own life. But if I don't do it for compassion, for love, that doesn't help on any way. So to me, this storehouse that the Bible is talking about is where the need is at, at the most. But obviously, in, from the perspective of religion, we think, it, okay, this is the area that it should go. But I don't think that that's taken directly from the Bible, but reading what I want from it. Well, Henry, I think you've well stated the challenge of different approaches to the Bible. And there's no text in the Bible that says, when the day comes that you form denominations, then your denomination will be the storehouse and you bring the tithes there. There's no text that says that. That would be the exegetical approach. Clearly, we are looking at bits and pieces of evidence and wrestling with how would that apply to our situation today? And the church has determined several things. One, the tithe is valid today. It's a universal principle. And the Melchizedek story is one piece of evidence for that. Jesus' statement in Matthew 23, that you should have observed justice and mercy, etc., not leaving the tithes undone. So that comes back to your comment, Henry, the balance in Malachi between tithe on the one hand and caring for the poor on the other hand, that both of those activities, Jesus seems to be saying, are important, but that caring for the underserved, etc., is actually the higher value, justice, mercy, etc. So the church has recognized tithing is valid for today. The equivalent of the temple, according to the New Testament, would be the church. The closest equivalent to the priests, to the Levites, would be the ministers in our churches today who are freed from earning their own way so that they can concentrate fully on the spiritual activities. But this is not an exegetical approach. It is a systematic theological approach. And that's why it was so important to me to do that hermeneutics, because the lesson was just going directly from a biblical text to our answers for today. And it's not as clean a line as we might like. But when you do a careful exegetical approach, theological approach, and then come to the questions of today, the church has given reasonable answers to that situation for today. All right, Alyssa. I wonder if in those days back in the Old Testament, or even the New, 
whether or not people had questions about how the tithe was being used and how the administrators of that tithe were using the tithe. Because I think today, if we look at our church, there are many, many people who do not give tithe, but somehow give their money to the poor, the homeless, the fatherless. You know, so I wonder how we apply what we have just studied for 45 minutes now to today. Do we question? And I'm going to say we do question. I'll tell you the young people in our church question how our church is using tithe and where and why should we send tithe to an institution, a storehouse that they don't think is appropriately using the tithe or explaining clearly how the tithe is being used. Mm -hmm. Yes, I recognize that very much. And it seems to me the church's response would be more constructive to simply acknowledge these steps and recognize this is a judgment we have made. If you don't trust us, then that's a problem, you know, and, and a challenge in our relationship. Given all the information we have, this seems to be the best way to go. And so those who are part of an institution and trust in its judgment will accept that even though it's not bombproof. Okay. Many years ago, I don't know, even decades ago, I was asked to serve on a GC committee for how the church is using tithes and offerings. And, you know, that group, we wrestled with these questions. And at the end, though, it was decided that what was in place was the best we can do. So when I make this criticism about today, I'm not saying that the church hasn't addressed it and tried to address it honestly and frankly and candidly. But nothing changed because the conclusion was the church was doing the best it could at that point. Mm -hmm. This issue of how tithe is being used. Is it being used in the best way? Is the church the best facilitator of that? I do remember those discussions. And I think at the seminary, we were consulted as part of that process, et cetera. So the question is, what authority does the collective body of believers have? And to what degree do we respond to that authority? I think the one caveat I would make is to not be overly critical of those who may not buy into that. I personally do, and we set aside tithes for the system and so on, because that, as you said, the best that we can do. We're taking biblical exegetical information and applying it for today in the best way we can. Michael? There is all kinds of expenses that the average church member doesn't see. For example, you go to the local church, the lawn is mowed. Well, most churches, the pastor doesn't mow the lawn, but he has to pay somebody to do that. And there's outreach programs of all kinds that are reaching out to people with distressful circumstances. And that's a part of the hidden expenses the average church member doesn't see. I was once in conversation with a Catholic priest and a Methodist minister, and the Catholic priest was upbraiding the Methodist minister for not taking tithes seriously. He says, it's a really good system. The Adventists know how to do it, and you should get your congregation on board. I thought that was a very <laughs> interesting and significant encounter. I was just a 25-year-old young pastor there learning from my college. Yeah, Livius. Okay, I might be breaking all kinds of rules here. <laughs> but I was thinking when you guys were talking about like, how do we connect today with this tithe concept? And what came to mind is John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Love is an other-centered principle. 
And you know, you said that life is money a while back. You've given several examples that life is money. Money is life. So is God just trying to like get us to be other-centered, to train us to be other-centered in this process? And our friends, aren't our friends our neighbors? Love your neighbor as yourself. Give of yourself. I couldn't have asked for a better closing remark because you're tying several things together from before for us here in this situation today. And absolutely, the correlation between money and life is so critical. God is inviting us that our hearts be other-centered, that they be God-centered. And the tithe is one way that we can do that. As Henry pointed out, other ways are helping the poor, etc. So I think that's an excellent conclusion to this what does tithing tell us about God? I think it's essentially that. God is inviting us to give our life. When you take up your cross, you're giving your life. The cross is the end of life. You're saying, whatever future I have is now in God's hands. He's inviting us to give our lives to him and for the sake of others. And that we have examples in history of tithe payers who crucified the Son of God. So simply paying tithe as a ritual act, as an enforced act, is not really what God desires. God desires our hearts. So couldn't have asked for a better conclusion, Livius. Thank you. Let's pray. Lord, we have wrestled with some very interesting passages in Scripture. We wish we knew more. And we trust that you will open our minds as we are ready to follow. But I pray that you would help us to see tithing not only as an obligation, but as a principle in which we give our lives, our hearts to you and for the benefit of others. So we pray that these studies and these thoughts would encourage us throughout the week to come. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.